Mentally or physically, success can be defined as getting up one more time after you've been knocked down over and over and over again. I'm T. Wood, and this is Triumphant Moments, where I highlight successful moments in life that are far beyond the surface to inform, encourage, and inspire people to triumph over their life's challenges. With me today, followers, I have a special one. Introducing Dr. Roslyn, President Dr. Roslyn Artis. She's born in Springfield, Massachusetts and raised in Southern West Virginia. She's a graduate of West Virginia State University, West Virginia University College of Law, and holds a doctorate in higher education leadership and policy from Vanderbilt University. She was the first female president of Florida Memorial University from 2014-2017 and currently is the 14th president of Benedict, I'm sorry, the Benedict College, and the first female to hold the position, a prolific speaker, critical thinker, and fierce advocate for educational access. Now, clearly, Dr. Artis has been recognized and highly accoladed for, you know, her work and things that she's done within the community, but it's her mentorship, leadership, and a catalyst for change that stands above the rest. Dr. Artis, President Dr. Artis, thank you and welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, I certainly feel very welcome. You should travel with me. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. No problem. And we're just grateful to have you here. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of dive on into it. Okay. All right. First of all, I know that you can't really say a normal day, but what would Monday through Friday during the week, as, as far as in getting up in the morning and things of that sort, do you have any normal things that you do to get yourself going and get ready to attack whatever you have to do for the day? Well, yes. Um, like most people, we have a routine in the morning. Um, my husband has the audacity to expect me to make him coffee, despite the fact that I work more hours a day than he does. Um, but it's something I don't mind doing. It's our quiet time in the morning. And then I try to get up to speed on the world, the chronicle of higher education inside higher ed, diverse issues in higher ed, what's happening in the space in which I have to move for the rest of the day. So once I feel like I'm up to date, then I'm in that email, on that text, connecting with my folks and getting ready for uh, another day of advocating for kids and moving their futures forward. So um, the first few hours of my day are information overload, just getting ready for the day. And then, of course, before I drive, I pray because Lord knows um, I am texting, driving, talking, thinking, dreaming, planning, and probably not paying attention. So every day is by the grace of God that I get to work on time safely. Man, man, I tell you what, if you were to think of just just to take a step back to your upbringing now you were raised your upbringing was primarily in west virginia is yes, that right sir. yes okay sir. so how would you describe your family you know your family life you know just sure. growing up in west virginia describe your parents um great question so uh, my parents um Neither of my parents was college educated. I am a first generation college student, as are so many of the students we educate here at Benedict College. Um, my dad was a coal miner, uh, so I am a stereotypical coal miner's daughter. Uh, Loretta Lynn and I have that in common. 
Uh, right. She being the white version, I being the black uh, gold miner's daughter. Um, my mom was a nurse's aide for most of my life. Um, and so both my parents just had excessive work ethics and really taught my brother and I um, that hard work really was the only recipe for success. And I thank them both for that. Um, you know, growing up in Southern West Virginia was certainly a unique experience. Um, mm. My father relocated our family from Massachusetts to West Virginia because of the coal mines. Um, those were among the only places that a black man could earn union scale wages. So blacks were paid union scale wages in the coal fields of southern West Virginia. And so while their work was harder and heavier, my father was a roof bolter. That meant he went in ahead of the whites and secured the roof so they could come in safely. So he was the canary in the mine uh, for all those years, but relocated us to Southern West Virginia so that we could have a life um, and he could make a decent wage. And so uh, West Virginia, however, outside those coal mines is very homogenous. So it is a 3% state, uh, not a lot of little brown girls running around, uh, not a lot of people who look like me. So I grew up uh, attending schools that were predominantly white, um, had a small enclave of people of color in our neighborhood. But once we kind of got off our street, we were surrounded by people who didn't look like us and had to grow up and navigate in a world that was, quite frankly, homogenous and not in our favor. Wow. I, I, I tell you what, it, you mentioned siblings. So, brother, you younger, you the, you were the oldest. I am the oldest. Translation, the caretaker. While my ah. parents were working. While my parents were working, I was home with my younger brother. My mom worked three to midnight in the hospital. Um, wow. And so, you know, I got to do the cooking and the cleaning and the checking of homework. Um, and that's probably why we don't speak to each other today. Just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. We love each other. Uh, we spent an awful lot of time together as children. As the older sibling, you really assume a caretaking role when you have um, both parents working out of necessity. I, I tell you what, so in, in, in the whole... So, so, you know, sibling, I want to say rivalry, anything of that sort. You know, so. it's just, that's just it. It's not right. It's it's decided. <laughs> and, and so he would watch this and be able to confirm. Yeah, she pretty much led. Um, he would have to say his sister took very good care of him. And that as the older sibling, if he has ever needed help, I have always been available to assist and support my little brother. Um, I am an enabler. I am his greatest enabler. And <laughs> Recognize the truth, brother. Recognize. Yes. Yes. Big shout out to you. Thank you. Well, I, I tell you what, um, you know, growing up in, let's say, uh, Growing up in your household, how would you describe, well, how did you had, you know, how did the option of an HBU come into play as you were in high school? So completely by accident. Uh, the truth of the matter is, although my parents understood the value of education, they didn't understand the value proposition, which means they had no way to pay for it. There was no college fund. Uh, I grew up in the Reagan 1980s. That's when Pell Grants were um, decreased. And so my father worked. So we were what we call the working poor. Uh, you were penalized for working during that period of time. So I was not eligible for a Pell Grant. The very thing that makes it... Um, possible for so many kids to go to college wasn't an option for me. And so my parents very seldom even discussed college. They didn't ask me if I wanted to go. They didn't encourage me to apply because they were worried they had no way to pay for it and didn't want to get my hopes up. So Wow. I was kind of hearing other people saying they were going to college and I thought, well, I want to do that. Um, I was a very good student. My uh, 
my teachers really always encouraged me. You're going to go to college. You're going to do great things. I decided very early on I wanted to be a lawyer. And so my teachers really supported that dream. And so I applied to 20 or 30 colleges um, and got into all of them. But how do you pay for it? I tried to figure out how to fill out the FAFSA by myself. Um, I tried to figure out how to apply for scholarships. And, um, you know, a miracle happened because God is God and things work the way they're supposed to work. And um, in 1988, I just dated myself. So now y'all know I'm old. Um, I got a scholarship letter from West Virginia State, then college, now university that gave me a full academic scholarship. And so, um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I didn't know it was an HBCU. I didn't know what an HBCU was because I grew up in a white community where HBCU was not an acronym that was familiar to everybody. Um, and because I had no options for college, I was on my way to the Air Force. I had already enlisted and was scheduled to be sworn in on Tuesday. Uh, and I got the letter and opened it actually on a Sunday. It must have come in the mail on Friday when my mom opened it on Mother's Day of 1988. And uh, we got a we got a Mother's Day miracle. Um, I got a scholarship, so I was on my way to West Virginia State without having any idea that it was an HBCU or even what an HBCU was. Wow! And, and see, my next question that that pushed me was, you know, what drove you know your decision to attend an HBCU? You know, West Virginia State University. You know, it, it sounds like it was was it more by chance? An accident, as you kind of mentioned? You know, I, I like to say ordained. Um, I think, you know, God works the way he works. I think um, he could have given me a scholarship anywhere, but it was his desire and plan for my life that I attend an HBCU. And, I, you know, I'm so grateful. Uh, I My entire trajectory was changed because of that experience. Um, to see people who look like me, to have a president who looked like me, a first lady who looked like me, a first daughter who looked like me, faculty, staff, roommates, friends, you name it. And I thought, I, I can get my hair wet in front of y'all. <laughs> I mean, like all the things that we do as Black people who grow up in a predominantly white world to um, diminish ourselves, to wow. not look different, to try to fit in, you wish I would jump in a swimming pool, right? Well, swimming is a required course when I was in school. And I thought, we're going to swim in front of people like our hair. Well, guess what? We all had this hair and we all jumped in that water and we all made it work because we were at home, right? We were among people who shared our lived experience, our physical characteristics, our curly hair, our brown skin. And it was an amazing awakening for me. Mm. When you think about and just uh, this is one basic understanding we have, you know, as we continue to be allowed to breathe and we wake up in the morning, uh, be able to see uh, another day, having, you know, our limbs, just basic stuff that we tend to kind of overlook as we continue to have that. It's likely that you're going to face some type of challenge in your life, you know, mm -hmm. you know, so so with that being said, can you think back? to any moment in your life that you've experienced, no matter what it was, that either was was challenging for you or that you found a way to cope. It happened in your life and you found a way to deal with it and press forward or you, know, you found a way to overcome it. So I think the greatest challenge um, I've experienced, and I, I trust that many, uh, particularly Black women, will appreciate it and, and have this experience as well if they grew up anywhere near where I did, it's a it's the great identity crisis. It's figuring out who you are and where you fit in. Uh, growing up in Southern West Virginia, you know, I alluded to hair, right? So, 
I would be, the, I would always volunteer to wash the towels and the radio because not because I didn't want to swim, but because I couldn't, I didn't want my hair, you know, to, to swell up in front of white people. I would sit with my legs crossed, you know, little kids say crisscross applesauce instead of keeping my legs outright because I had, you know, a white classmate say to me, why are your knees so black? I mean, those kinds of psychological overcompensations that we make to fit into a world that does not appreciate our notions of beauty, our physical characteristics, et cetera. And so I had all these adaptations, right? All these ways that I kind of got in where I fit in. And then I came to an HBCU and had to go through a whole nother identity crisis. So it wasn't all ice cream and roses the moment I got there. Listen, I was listening to Bon Jovi. Uh, T, I had to learn how to be black. I had to learn how to be black. Do you hear me? Um, you're not born knowing that, right? If it's not your culture, if it's not your upbringing, if you haven't been taught it, if you haven't lived it, walked it, eaten it, breathed it, you, you almost, for people always say, um, you know, at an HBCU, you can be yourself. Like black people can be their authentic selves. Listen, mm. my HBCU taught me what my authentic self was. Come on. My HBCU told me I was black. And I said, okay, and? And they said, do you know what that means? Right. Mm -hmm. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand the, the ilk, the stock that you come from, the blood that runs in your veins? No, because nobody white ever told me. Right. So it took me getting there and recalibrating and overcoming a second identity crisis where I understood that I was actually at home for the first time. Perhaps I was actually at home. And so really had to wrestle with that. And then it got really good to me. And here I am. I never left. Right. I never want to leave our 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 environment. See, that brings the question. How how would you describe, you know, your experience during college? You know, your let's say social life and, you know, the, the ends and out getting to class, that experience there. Was there were you more shy, you know, shying away from folks or were you more, you know, yeah, I mean, again, I they were listening to MC Hammer. I was listening to Bon Jovi. I mean, I had to figure this thing out. I, I had to figure out kind of who I was and where I was from. Um, I ate, you know, cream of wheat. They ate grits. Hmm, OK, what that is. I mean, I had to, you know, it took me a minute to adapt. Um, so glad I did. I like grits now. But um, it took me a hot second to figure out what exactly was happening. And so there was a moment of just recalibration adjustment. But the warmth of our people, right, the warmth of our culture and our people and the fact that you do feel at home, that period was really very short. Um, navigating around that campus was a transformational experience, as it is for most students who attend HBCUs. We are small. Uh, the largest among us, I guess, A&T now is about 12,000 students. So if you think about that in the grand scheme of higher education, that's really a very small population. Benedict is 2,000 students. So we know each other. Right. We know who your people are. We know who you where you came from. We know how you acted when you got here, when you got Come brand new. We saw the change. Come <laughs> you know, we, we and so I think that it was that kind of um, small campus environment where I had opportunities for leadership, where I had opportunities to see the president up close and personal, where I had opportunities to talk to my faculty and they pour into me and help me that I wouldn't trade for anything. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't trade it for now there's a there's a a good few positive things happening at Benedict College. Can you you know enlighten us on on what's going on here? 
Well, you know, I passed on the opportunity at the beginning of the interview to amplify Benedict College, but I'm not going to do it again. Uh, so Benedict College is the HBCU that put the BC in HBCU, just to be clear. Uh, we are 152 years old. Uh, our birthday party was crashed by COVID, so we did not get to fully celebrate our sesquicentennial anniversary two years ago, but we're going to go back. Um, our history is too important not to amplify. Um, Benedict is the birthplace of Septima Clark, the mother of the civil rights movement. Uh, Benedict is the birthplace of Leroy Walker, the first African-American to lead the U.S. Olympic Games, uh, wow. actually the Olympics period, not the U.S. Olympic Games, the Olympics. Um, so many people have come, you know, through these hallowed halls on this hallowed ground that continue to make impact in the world today. And we're not going to stop. Our trajectory is one of winners and overcomers. And that's what Benedict produces. So the Marching Tiger Band of Distinction that you had the opportunity uh -oh. to engage with a little bit when you came here is on its way to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We will be showing our Tiger Pride marching down 34th Street on Thanksgiving Day of 2022. Uh, you can send donations if you want to. Um, <laughs> we are recalibrating our programming. We're diving deep into cybersecurity, information technology, engineering, um, pre-law, pre-med, really getting Black children prepared to go to the next level and to meet the workforce demand. So lots of exciting things happening on this campus always. We have an incubator and an entrepreneurship program for young Black entrepreneurs who have a great idea and just need to understand how to monetize that vision. Um, let's turn that side hustle into a sustainable business and create generational wealth. That's what we're about here. So um, it is a great day to be a tiger. It's a great day to lead um, Benedict College into her future. I think it's bright. Mm. Do you... It amongst all the things that you know you're having to handle you know being the president of the of the college um would you say there's some moments to where you kind of have to take a pause and refresh you know mentally because it's like I, it has to be a tremendous amount of people pulling at you pulling at you pulling at you pulling at you uh in a sense so is there ever a shut down shut off or take a break moment mentally um, I'm, I'm getting better. So this is, I just started my ninth year um, as a president. Um, Congrats. Year at Thank you. Listen, I, I'm a survivor. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Walter Kimbrough, you may know, who's at Dillard, um, published an article not too long ago. And in it, he amplified that um, Glenda Glover and I are of only 16 women since 1970 that have served longer than eight years. They I think it. you need, I'm sorry, I need you to say that again, please. I got to make sure they heard that. Um, yes. Glenda Glover, who is the president of Tennessee State, and I are among only 16 Black women who have survived longer than eight years uh, since 1970 as HBCU president. So our 10 years tend to be shorter. Uh, they're high pressure, um, very visible, and you know people don't hesitate to take it to us. So uh, we have to be mentally tough, um, and that really mitigates against taking a break. And I think that's the challenge for women. Uh, we are constantly proving ourselves. We are constantly, um, you know, silencing the haters, right? We're constantly trying to take it to another level because we know that if we blow it, there won't be another woman behind us. So if the first female president of Benedict blows it, how long is it going to take to get another one? Um, and so the pressure to do a good job is quite significant. And so we don't always do much in the way of self-care. Um, that's something I'm really passionate about right now, mentoring other young women and helping them sort of carve out some me time. I don't 
I'm, I'm not doing it by example, um, but I'm certainly doing it in terms of saying, don't be like me. Um, I need you to rest and, and, and practice self-care because, you know, I saw a meme or something on social media the other day that said your employer will work you to death and then maybe send flowers to your funeral and then replace you and keep it moving. Right. So if we don't care for self, if we don't stop long enough to mentally recharge, to physically reinvigorate, um, it's not sustainable. It's just, you can't be your best self if you are a shell, a fraction of yourself. Mm. President Dr. Artis, uh, first and foremost, what you said was so profound. That was so powerful. I really have to appreciate the factor of you even admitting the struggles you have with, you know, maintaining that and doing, you know, that that whole shut off thing and that take a break thing. I look, the factor of you being willing to push that to uh, other individuals and you know putting it out there of how important it is, greatly appreciate that because it is because there, there's a there's a have you ever heard that there's a physical side that can be affected from not finding a way to kind of take breaks or finding a way to kind of have some self care. So I am 100% certain of it, and I know it to be a fact. Uh, I, am, I am certain that stress manifests itself in physiological ways, right? So I will be transparent and tell you I have the worst acid reflux. And guess what? It fires up when I have a massive deadline under tremendous pressure through COVID. I've been eating a lot of Tums, trying to make sure these kids are safe on this campus. And so that is not because I eat too much you know, red sauce. That is because your stress level impacts your physical health. Um, it, there are physiological responses. And so as women in particular, uh, and I don't know kind of the demographic of your viewing audience, but you know, I say to the women in particular, you have got to watch this because um, I am a student of HBCUs. I'm a student of women leaders in HBCUs and I've buried a few. Um, you know, Deb Saunders White at NCCU died in office. Um, Michelle Howard Patal died um, immediately after leaving office. Listen, y'all. We've had sister presidents uh, at Bennett College battle cancer while in office. We had Madam President Thompson at Coffin State battling cancer while in office. These are physiological responses to intense stress. And that does not mean they can't handle it because they did it. They, they pushed through it. They went through treatment and they and they made it. I mean, those that survived right? Never let their institutions down. But for those that didn't, at what cost? At what cost? Um, I love the work I do. I love these babies. I love this campus. I love HBCU culture. But do I love it more than I love my own children who will be orphaned if I'm not here? Uh, we have got to internalize um, self-care in the same way that we internalize the stress. Uh, and majority of the uh, viewers and followers uh, actually are women uh, uh, for the show. So, Dr. Artis, thank you. I mean, if you had to, there's something I created called encouragement for free. If there was something that, whether we talked about it during this episode or something that you grew up and were told by your folks and you just kind of learned over time or your creed, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, what is some encouragement for free that you can provide and leave with all the listeners and followers of the show? Sure. So again, I must have a dual personality disorder because the uh, work ethic that my parents instilled in me is really um, captured in a Maya Angelou quote, life works for people who do. 
you cannot expect good results if you are not prepared and willing to put in the work to achieve those results. Um, the caveat, however, is that Job and Job are spelled the same. God has a sense of humor. Uh, so it can be a job, a calling, a profession, a vocation, or it can be the trials of Job, right? I mean, it can feel like a punishment. Come on. Love what you do. You need to love you a little bit um, and be able to balance those two things. Life works for people who do, and life is lived by people who survive, right? So give yourself permission to take a breath, give yourself permission to take a break. But when it's time to work, um, go hard in the paint. Go hard in the paint for whatever it is you're called to do. Come on. And y'all know what go hard in the paint is. Come on. Y'all know what that is. Let's go. Dr. Artis, uh, is there any. Uh, particular uh, sites or uh, social media platforms that if anyone wants to just, they're encouraged by you, they just want to follow what you're doing, what you're doing with the with the college and, and things of that sort, any other projects you might be participating part of, what can they go to online to, to follow or watch? So certainly follow Benedict College, benedict.edu is our website. And of course, we're Benedict College on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Twitter, you name it, Benedict is there. Personally, I am R. Clark Artist on Instagram, Rosalind Artist on Facebook, and R. Artist on Twitter. I don't know why I didn't have sense enough to keep those things consistent, uh, but I'm not hard to find. Um, please uh, take a moment, uh, follow us, encourage us, pray for us, uh, walk along with us as we continue the journey of educating young black children for a 21st century economy. Come on, come on. Uh, Dr. Artis, uh, first and foremost, uh, I can never express enough how much I appreciate you taking our time in your day to even, you know, come on this platform I've created to encourage folks. I really, really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, really appreciate you doing that. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you for giving voice to so many folks that perhaps wouldn't have it if it wasn't for you. Oh, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. As I've said before, many, many times and many occasions, uh, sometimes in life you must fail in order to succeed. But one thing must remain certain and consistent that you never under any circumstances give up. I'm trying for moments with T. Wood and with me was President Dr. Artis. Y'all take care. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.